Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gil Halstead, a former member of the Wisconsin Education Association Council and United Faculty and Staff. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Annette Kuhlmann. This week we share Labor's perspectives on the Ukraine war, learn about an event celebrating the life and work on, of Joe Hill, discuss issues behind Madison Metro efforts to break up a bargaining unit, check in on contract negotiations at CUNA and share COVID report and much more. If you would like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. CUNA Mutual and the Office and Professional Employees International Union, Local 39, are in negotiations for a new contract. Labor Radio has the story. Local 39 faced huge challenges as 2022 opened. The CUNA workforce was working remotely. The contract was up. There was little indication that CUNA management was open to the workers' needs. Labor Radio spoke with OPEIU Local 39 Chief Steward Joe Avica to describe how the workforce and local responded. Joe, when did the local first start preparing for the contract? So contract negotiations began early February of 2022, and we really started doing outreach to members beginning in about July of 2021. Could you describe in more detail how the local went about organizing? Over the last several months uh, prior to negotiations starting, our bargaining team began reaching out to the membership of our union through surveys and virtual lunch meetings to determine the direction that we should follow at the bargaining table. Members have been uh, incredibly inspiring through the process so far, so uh, dozens of members have changed their work email uh, Outlook profile logo to the union symbol. Dozens of members have emailed HR to tell the company why our priorities uh, are important to them. Hundreds of members have participated in town hall meetings regarding the bargaining process. Uh, to stay active and engaged. More than 300 of my coworkers signed on to a letter directed to our CEO, Bob Trunzo, uh, explaining how we look forward to a contract that reflects the value that we create for our company and for our clients. How did the members go about deciding on the key issues? So we used surveys from our membership and we also started doing regular lunch meetings with our membership where we would discuss issues that we've come across in regards to the contract over the last several years. We followed the economy closely to kind of verify where inflation is going and the unemployment rate um, because a lot of things have changed throughout the pandemic. Can you describe the key issues as identified by your membership? Our members have determined that there's about five main priorities 
The first would be fair compensation. So compensation that takes into account the value that we bring our company and the fact that inflation is at a 40-year high. The second would be the flexibility to work remotely. So uh, all represented employees having the ability to work remotely into the future beyond the pandemic. The third has to do with the protection of our HMO healthcare plan and also an increase in the quality of the high deductible plans, uh, particularly for union employees that are being hired outside of the Madison area. The fourth is the protection of our retirement benefits for current as well as future employees. And then I'd say last but not least is job security. So we need language that ensures that our company can't outsource our careers or replace our work with contractors uh, and essentially kind of leave us on the curb. Could you talk a little bit more about the level of involvement and what inspired you the most? What inspires me the most is just seeing our members be vocal about their opinions and, and their feelings regarding what they feel like they deserve. So for me personally, knowing, for example, that our company, CUNA Mutual Group, has made hundreds of millions of dollars in net income every single year of our current collective bargaining agreement, our members are well aware of of that fact. They're aware of the fact that our company just recently bought Global Preneed, which is a company that's valued at more than $1.4 billion. And as our, our members see all of these things, and I think it, it gives them the confidence to know that our company is doing well and we're creating value for our company and for our clients. And so it's really inspiring to see people kind of come together and be unified for a contract that really reflects, you know, all of the value that we've been creating. Contract negotiations took place Thursday. We're in the parties exchange proposals. More next week with the results of those discussions. Thanks to Joe Vika, Chief Steward, OPIU Local 39, CUNY Mutual. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. On Wednesday, March 23rd, the U.S. Supreme Court made an unprecedented decision on Wisconsin legislative maps. Jacob Malinowski, the communications director for the Fair Elections Project, is here with us today to tell us the updates on the latest Supreme Court decision regarding Wisconsin's legislative map. Back in early March, everyone in the states figured after the 4-3 state Supreme Court decision, where the Wisconsin State Supreme Court chose Governor Evers' least changes maps. The maps were set in stone. Our elections begin on April 15th when signatures can be collected. Nevertheless, Republicans submitted a final Hail Mary decision to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to get these maps thrown out. Our U.S. Supreme Court has clearly been captured by partisan interests and actually took this up and made a ruling on what's called their shadow docket yesterday. So it's not a real decision. It's a legal jargon to basically say that these maps are indeed thrown out and thrown back to Wisconsin Supreme Court. This is unprecedented. In fact, it actually breaks the precedent they set back in February that they weren't going to have enough time to meddle in elections. And now our entire election process is thrown into chaos, not to mention the fact that the VRA has yet again been attacked by our judicial system. VRA, just for clarity, is the Voting Rights Act? Correct. And that was what was so monumental about our maps here in Wisconsin. There was a map decided by our Wisconsin State Supreme Court to have seven majority-minority districts, and that's primarily what the Republican legislature has had a problem with. 
That was the basis of their entire appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's what's being attacked here. What is our next step? Right now, this is completely in the hands of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. We're waiting to see what sorts of maps they're going to consider. They don't have to throw out the maps that the U.S. Supreme Court said they have to. It's a really, really complicated, finicky legal situation. But what we can do is continue what we've been doing over the last year, three years, 10 years, which is standing up and saying that the people of Wisconsin demand fair maps. Uh, So it's really important we continue to make our voices heard, uh, that we continue to tell our friends and neighbors and our representatives how important fair maps are to us. What's the likely outcome So while it's impossible to predict the outcome, I can predict the consequences that this is going to continue to throw our elections into turmoil and will continue to disenfranchise voters of color across our state. There was some discussion about the congressional maps as opposed to the state Senate and assembly maps. Can you explain the distinction there? Sure. The congressional maps were also appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court decided not to throw those maps out. So the maps that were chosen for our congressional districts at a federal level, those maps are almost guaranteed to stay where they are. Our legislative maps on a state level, those are the ones that are in turmoil right now and affect, you know, all 100 and some elected offices we're going to be electing in November. How does this affect the April election? This has no effect on anything happening in three weeks in our April election, since that's mostly at the municipal and county level. However, signature collection starts on April 15th. So that's only three weeks away. And the U.S. Supreme Court says we need a new map by then, which is unprecedented and completely unwarranted. That is Jacob Malinowski from the Fair Elections Project. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Workers at Meritor Hospital in Madison have a new contract. Labor Radio reports. Workers at Unity Point Meritor Hospital in Madison have a new contract. Labor Radio spoke to Michael Elvord, a co-chair of SEIU and a newly elected member of the SEIU board, who gave the basics of the new two-year deal. Our contract covers food and nutrition and service and support, basically. CNAs, engineering, EBS, which is housekeeping, environmental services, and food and nutrition. The negotiations were as you would expect. Management didn't want to give, didn't want to budge. We are very excited about the contract that we did receive because we absolutely earned everything that we got. They didn't give us anything that we didn't earn, deserve, and fight for. Elvord says membership is very happy with the contract. We had the ratification vote just this past week. It passed with fine colors. We did not lose a single thing that we had gained in the past. So we had zero regression on anything. There were four or five items that we agreed to would stay current contract language. Those were items that were huge to us not to lose anything. Short-term medical disability being probably the largest of those. There were other items that we had zero regression, and that's a very big selling point to our members. That was huge. 
Elvord describes wage negotiations. We were offered uh, pretty, it, it was, the offer was insulting, actually, 1.8%. We ended up having 6%, which is effective March 7th, March 7th of this year. And then it will be another additional 3% effective March 6th of 2023. And then we had starting wages increased to $17 an hour, which management was basically following what is happening around the workforce in other places. Labor radio listeners may remember how Meritor management gave themselves emergency time off due to the COVID pandemic, but did not extend it to blue-collar staff. Elvord describes a win on this in the latest negotiations. Uh, another huge thing was the ET that we had asked management to give us maybe eight months ago when the pandemic was hitting us the hardest. The hospital refused to give it to us eight months ago. They said we could bargain. And when we got to bargaining, they really didn't want to move on that. We had expected maybe 40 hours of ET. We got 60 hours of ET. Elvord describes a key side agreement. The diversity issue was huge in our discussions that the hospital doesn't just preach and talk growingly about what they're going to do. Probably 80% of the workforce is African-American or Hispanic or other marginalized community members. We have a side agreement, which is a commitment from Unity Point Health Meritor to actually work with us to actually get things done visibly so that you can actually see what's happening, what's being done in the community, in our hospital, and for our union members. This is a side agreement that we absolutely will hold them accountable for. It's a commitment that they have made to us, and we are going to make sure that they live up to that commitment. Elvord credits the participation and solidarity shown by the rank and file for the successful negotiations. The one thing I just really wanted to let our members know is how important their involvement was in this contract negotiation. It was impressive. It was important. It gave us the strength as a bargaining unit to continue to go and go and go because it's, it's a difficult thing. Management doesn't give you anything that you don't fight for and earn. And our, our members showed up in force. That was Michael Elvord of SEIU Healthcare. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. The Poor People Campaign is mobilizing for a national demonstration in Washington, D.C. in June. Madison is one stop on the national mobilization. Labor Radio has this story. What is your name and position within the Poor People's Campaign? My name is Brittany Reamer, um, and I am a tri-chair for the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. When and where will the mobilization tour take place in Madison? The tour stop is going to be on Monday, March 28th. We're going to gather at the top of State Street, so the corner of State Street and North Carroll Street at 4.30. The march will start at 5 o'clock, and then the assembly will start at 6 o'clock, and that will be at First United Methodist Church. Is there an assembly at the church before the march? If people don't want to, so we're just gathering on the corner um, of State Street North Carroll by the Capitol, but if people don't want to participate in the march or unable to, then they can go right to the, the church. And what are the goals of the mobilization tour? So the mobilization tour is a cross-country tour with about 10 stops, and each stop is regional to that area. So the stop here in Madison is going to include folks from Illinois, Minnesota, and Iowa. 
And the goal of the tour is to uplift the, the local struggles and uplift the impacted people in the areas and tell the stories of, you know, what, what we're all struggling with in our, in our parts of the country. Who are the featured speakers for this uh, event? Reverend Dr. Liz Leo Harris and then uh, Pastor Jackson, Pastor Alvin Jackson will be joining us as well. And we have a bunch of people speaking overall. Those speeches will actually be held at 203 Wisconsin? They'll be held at 203 at FUMC. There's going to be a lot of music kind of put in there, um, some videos. So that, that event will be at the First United Methodist Church, right? Yep, the, the Mass Assembly will be at First United Methodist Church. This is all leading up to a march and assembly in Washington, D.C. on June 18th. Can you talk more about that, please? The uh, Mass Poor Peoples and Low-Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. June 18th is going to be, you know, it, it's a day of declaration. We're, we're gathering um, as as a whole, as the 140 million poor dispossessed of this country, to make it known that we're not going to be silent anymore and that, you know, we we have a right to live, everybody has a right to live, and we're not going to stop until, you know, we get what we have a right to. It's it's not, that's not a poor people's campaign day. That's in everybody day. And what are the best ways for people to find out more about the Poor People's Campaign or make contact with the Poor People's Campaign? So the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign can be reached on Facebook. Just search Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. Email wisconsin at poorpeoplescampaign.org. And the National Poor People's Campaign website is poorpeoplescampaign.org. The city of Madison is trying to break up a Teamsters bargaining unit at Madison Metro. A hearing was held this week. Labor Radio has more. The city of Madison has ordered that a part of the bargaining unit of Teamsters Local 695, the union that represents the bus system of Madison Metro, be removed as part of the unit. Local 695 has challenged this. On Wednesday, a hearing of the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission, the WERC, was held in a room at Teamsters Local 695 with WERC staff attorney Peter Davis presiding. Labor Radio spoke yesterday to Kyle McCoy, a labor attorney with the firm Solden McCoy, who represented the Teamsters at Wednesday's hearing. McCoy explains the background to the case and the union's position. So the city of Madison attempted to remove four positions at Madison Metro from the Teamsters Collective Bargaining Unit. And those are positions that have for a long time been in the unit. The city alleged that their duties had changed such that under Chapter 111, they had become uh, confidential employees. Our position obviously was no, 
They are not. They may deal in arguably confidential material, but not as that pertains to Chapter 111, which means labor relations confidentiality. So the union opposed the removal of any of those positions. And because the city was adamant uh, that it wanted to remove them, we proceeded to a hearing before a hearing officer at the WERC. Wednesday's hearing consisted of the sworn testimony of supervisors and managers for the city side and affected workers represented under the current collective bargaining agreement for the union side. On a number of occasions, the city tried to present instances where the affected employees handled any confidential information or where the employees had the power to change data, clearly implying that the ability of union members to do this was a threat to confidentiality. Immediately after the hearing, Labor Radio asked the City of Madison's representative, Greg Leifer, the employee and labor relations manager for the City of Madison, whether the city had found any instance of such an abuse of data happening. Not that I'm aware of, but it can be can either they can't the attendance violations or not can may not be entered or they can be changed. But these positions have changed over time because the attendance rules have changed and our, our tracking process changed with it about four years ago. For the union's part, McCoy questions the entire relevance of the city's line of questioning here. Normally what you hear in a confidentiality argument is the argument that someone's assistant or secretary should be exempted from statutory coverage. Here, mostly the city's arguments seem to be these individuals, clerks, techs, and a transit office coordinator are, one, privy to confidential medical information, which I think we showed that really they're not. And to the extent that they are, that isn't really part of what's concerned by Chapter 111's confidentiality exemption. What you really end up with is, I think, conflating two different confidentiality standards. Simply because someone sees someone's medical information doesn't give the union an advantage in bargaining. And and that's really where the exception lies. McCoy continues. Now, the city gets a little closer to that with their argument that some of these employees had access to and the ability to manipulate attendance records and that that plays a part in disciplining employees. But again, I think Just the fact that someone has access to an employer record or record-keeping ability doesn't mean that they're abusing it, nor does it mean that they can utilize it to advantage the union in bargaining. And two, these uh, individuals are not making disciplinary decisions, and and, uh, I think the hearing revealed that. That was attorney Kyle McCoy, who is representing Teamster Local 695 in his case against the city of Madison before the Wisconsin Employee Relations Commission. We asked McCoy if he might have any idea why a nominally pro-union administration would expend this level of resources to remove four people from a union's bargaining unit on such arguable grounds. McCoy declined to speculate. This is the last hearing in the case. Both the city and the union will submit written arguments due next month to the WERC. The WERC's Davis estimates the decision may come as early as June. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Next up. Next up, we hear a labor perspective on the war in Ukraine. David Newby, a former steering committee member of U.S. Labor Against the War and President Emeritus of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, talks to us about a resolution on the Russian war in Ukraine. As a result of the Russian threat of invasion, former leaders and the founders of U.S. Labor Against the War, which was organized to try to stop war in Iraq, got together and developed a resolution and a statement on the war, which we have gotten out to about five or 600 activists that have signed on to it, along with a number of union locals and labor councils around the country. 
We also locally put together a resolution, a statement actually, for the South Central Federation of Labor. The resolution condemns the invasion by Russia and goes on then to reiterate our total opposition to a no-fly zone, to the introduction of either U.S. or NATO troops into Ukraine, calls for an immediate ceasefire by all parties, and then the rapid withdrawal of all foreign military and paramilitary forces and the demilitarization of Ukraine itself. And also points out the danger of any kind of confrontation directly with Russia escalating into a nuclear war, which obviously would be a disaster for all of us. There was also a, a mention of the need for the United States and international financial organizations to cancel Ukraine's foreign debt. They are obviously in no position to repay that debt. They're going to need God knows how many billions of dollars simply to rebuild once the war is over. If people want to see this resolution or learn more about it, where do they go? They can go to the South Central Federation of Labor website at scfl.org. So I understand you have an event coming up. We do. We have developed a webinar on labor and the Russian war in Ukraine. It will be next Wednesday, March 30th at 7 o'clock Central Daylight Time with terrific panelists. Elise Bryant, who is the national president of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, Phyllis Bennis from the Institute for Policy Studies, Sarah Nelson, the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, Bill Fletcher, former education director of the FLCIO and president of TransAfrica, and finally, Carl Rosen, who is the president of the United Electrical Workers. And again, that will be next Wednesday, March 30th. You can register for it through the South Central Federation of Labor website, scfl.org. Why did you and others in your group create this resolution? It is so important for labor to have a voice in this crisis because it is one which is affecting not only working people in Ukraine, but also in all of Europe, in Russia itself, in the United States. We need workers and their organizations to be taking a stand to bring this war to an end as quickly as possible. That was David Newby. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. You can learn about Joe Hill, the Wobblies, and more at a performance celebrating his life on April 7th. Here are the details. Joe Hill is alive and well, at least in spirit. Join us on April 7th as we celebrate the life and times of Joe Hill and his fellow Wobblies in a performance we are calling Joe Hill, Alive as You and Me. Tom Castle, noted Madison folk singer and actor, will bring to life Joe and his fellow workers in song and story. That is Thursday, April 7th at 7.30 p.m. at the Dark Horse Art Bar, a very cool new venue at 756 East Washington. Free as always, we'll be requiring proof of vaccination at the door. Labor veteran teacher and organizer Frank Emsbach will lead the post-show discussion. Shave women collaborators! 
Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach and Alan LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Gaboski, Sean Hangerup, Anna Hahn, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Weidel, damage control specialist Joy and Powers, and thank you as well for website editor J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Gil Hall said we'd also like to thank all the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. Dave Watts.